1: Thank you, Alex Friedman. Yes, welcome to Rocks Across the Pond. It's a curling podcast. My name is Ryan McGee, and I am joining you from Richmond, Virginia. And joining me, as always, from Southampton, England, is Jonathan Havercroft. Jonathan, have you gotten to leave the house lately?
0: I went for a run this morning. That was very exciting. That's about it. Oh, we ordered, all right, the thing I had for the first time in uh, 11 weeks were French fries last night.
1: Okay, you made homemade, or did you have them? No,
0: homemade French homemade French fries suck. No, like no do then, you, then you're terrible different. at making them. Maybe I am, but I was like, no. We got we had Uber Eats deliver us burgers and fries. It was okay, good. I got nice. like loaded cheese fries. It was
1: excellent. So that's been the highlight of my weekend. All right, so what have you been eating? Because I've been eating terrible during quarantine.
0: <laughs> have you? We've actually been eating well. So it's like we. I mean, I've got to say, like for us, it's it's basically like because you can't go to a restaurant, can't eat out, and we we try very consciously after the first couple of weeks to to not order in all the time. And so I would actually say my diet lately has probably been the healthiest it's been like ever. We basically, basically our rule of thumb is Friday night we can order something and then because it was a long weekend here we we broke down into two nights in a row so that was our a highlight of our weekend um, and that's that's what passes for fun these days so uh,
1: last night uh, <laughs> so you can compare that to me last night I had frozen. White Castle mini cheeseburgers and bagel bites. So what does that say about our personalities that you're all of a sudden on this health kick during quarantine and I'm just eating the worst possible things that someone can put into their body? Uh, I think it's different strokes for different folks. I
0: did. I did also, I was pretty bad boozer for the first two weeks <laughs> I was three stress drinking. I was basically like, I'm probably going to die from this thing. So I may as well drink. Yeah. Uh, I dialed that back too. I've kind of I found an equilibrium point, and actually I'm not even bored anymore. I just this is just my life now, so <laughs> and yeah. so I could, I could probably coast now for uh, months if I had to. Now that it's starting, now yeah.
1: that it's now that it's starting to get warmer, are folks there starting to kind of like test the boundaries of quarantine, or is it still pretty much? Uh,
0: yeah, like so I was out Friday, and like there's a. I don't want to say gang, but like, just kids, <laughs> there's like, you know, 17 year old kids clearly smoking and drinking and doing whatever kind of storming down our street. Like no attempt to do any social distancing. They clearly reach the, like, they don't care anymore state. Um, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of people. I've, I've had a few people reach out and try to kind of bend the quarantine rules in different ways I'm like ah I don't feel like it but I'm I'm sure there's a lot of stuff kind of going on on the the down low. I'm sure if you're like I mean if if I was 18, 19, 20, I don't think I think it would be a pretty tough summer to to have to lose, right? <laughs> so well, f- uh,
1: Friday I had beer delivered and it was this deal where this brewery was saying, "Okay, your neighbor, you know, on this day, your neighborhood, if you all order beer, we'll deliver it to this one place. We'll, you know, free delivery fee. You just got to walk over. You guys got to come over to this one address and pick up your beer. And it was literally a block and a half from my house. So I went ahead and did it. And I walked over there to go pick up the beer. And there's, all these people there just hanging out, no masks, no social distancing, just sitting there drinking this beer. And I walk up with my mask on like feeling like I'm the idiot and just grab my beer and left. And everyone else just kind of sat there in that person's driveway, just drinking beers and acting as if there wasn't a pandemic going around. So fun times.
0: Yeah, I think it's going to be interesting. I don't know how much longer they can people will hold out. For sure. I think it's kind of starting to reach its breaking point, I'd say.
1: Yeah, I'd agree. I think, people, yeah, I think people are ready. If it's not affecting their immediate area, they feel that none of this exists. And I think we're where I live, there's a little bit of a bubble and you don't have – I imagine there's a lot of people who live around me who don't know anyone who's gotten it or known anyone that um, has either died or almost died from this thing. Yeah, and i I think being in that bubble, they're starting to say, "Okay, enough of this. It's obviously not a big problem, so we can just go back to doing things as normal." And I think that that's a dangerous proposition. And I think that that's one of the reasons that I'm having every time I hear people talk about, "Oh, yeah, we'll have curling in the fall. It'll be fine." That's I kind of think you know, pump the brakes here because anything can happen between now and September, October. And mainly you have a summer where people are going to feel like this was all blown way out of proportion. Why aren't we acting like normal? And I'm very interested to see what happens middle of July. Because in June, people are going to start just saying, okay, we're going back to normal to heck with all this. And I'm very, I'm very fearful of what might happen in July based off of that. And then if if there's another huge spike then, then forget about it. Forget about everything until, until there's a vaccine.
0: Yeah, maybe. I mean, I think, so I'm doing a fair bit of work where we're like looking at how to run university next year. And I think most of the lecturers are concerned about social distancing and how you run a classroom with social distancing. But actually like the experts who the university is consulting, it's all about testing. Mm-hmm. which they're like less concerned. It's interesting. Like They're less concerned about how many people are in a space versus can you kind of create a bubble on a university campus for lack of a better term, where it's like, have, have all the students been tested? Do you have a rapid testing regime? And apparently there's a couple, there's a couple of like promising things I heard this week that there's, they're pretty close to being able to roll out some quick mm-hmm. tests. Um, and that, that could kind of be a game changer. So it's basically, can you test a lot of people on campus? Like one one thing that was pitched to us was basically, uh, you'd almost have staging points. People would have to come to campus, get a twenty minute test, and then they'd be allowed inside the, the campus area. And then you, could, but then you could be close, right? So, or they'd kind of talk about breaking the campus up into different zones and different colors. Mm-hmm. And so, if you're blue color, you can go here. If you're red, you go there. So,
1: and then if you break I the think- bubble, if you if you break contained, you have to be tested again, basically.
0: Yeah. And so it's it's it, it, it oddly I kind of came away from that meeting being optimistic but also like I was, okay, like I can see how this might work, but it'll also be a very very different experience for like everyone. Uh-huh. Um uh, and so I th- I actually think that like curling's got a shot to be um back in some state, shape or form, right? Like I, it may not be like the full regular league, probably the post game socializing is not going to be there, but it's, if you think about it, it's like, it's not like basketball or football or any of these other sports where people are like right up in each other's face. There's a lot of sweat and kind of breath going on. Like it's, it's a pretty easy sport to, to keep your distance normally. Maybe, maybe it strips down to three person teams, Um, Maybe it means it's every other sheet or whatever, but it it doesn't strike me as being um, that hard a sport to bring back. Uh, I know they're, they're talking in Scotland about bringing back lawn bowling, which is basically summer curling without the sweeping. Right. (laughs) So (laughs) I'm like, so Scott, the Scottish government is going to let lawn bowling clubs open back up. Then I, that that to me was a sign that at least here, the, the public health England, public health UK are probably getting ready to let, some, some form of curling come back. And that's like, there's still pretty strict rules. Like it's, I know the golf courses are starting to open back up and the rule here is only two people on a hole at a time. Um, you can't really stick around. The clubhouse is still closed, but you, and you basically have to show up like five minutes before your tea time and you've got like a window. Uh, and so it's kind of tightly controlled that way, but they're at least letting people back into the facilities. So,
1: so my question with regards to that, one, how many curling clubs are municipally owned and how many of them are even going to be allowed to open? And then two, if you don't have bar sales and you're, all, and you're decreasing the number of people who are playing, so you're decreasing the number of people who can be paying league dues, are there some clubs where it's not going to be worth turning on the ice plant because they're going to lose a lot of money?
0: Uh, I think so. I mean, so it's going to vary in Canada. There's a lot of municipally owned clubs. I don't think there's too many in the U.S. I think Chaska, maybe I'm not sure if Blaine is or not. Like there's a couple of twin cities that if they're not owned outright, or at least in some kind of partnership with the municipality, but most of the clubs that I know in the U S are member owned in some way, shape or form. Um, it could be, I mean, I guess there's a kind of couple of different ways to go about it, right? Like, uh, this may be a time where clubs have to do a fundraiser just to kind of bridge or, or apply for grants. And it's just to kind of bridge the, the cash flow issue for the early part of the season. It could be they delay their start. Um, Canada a lot of municipally owned clubs. So I think there the government will have a bit more of an input. In the UK it's mostly privately owned or it's either privately owned in the sense that it's like one or two individuals who own the facility or like a privately held company, or it's owned outright by um, a council, like a municipal council. So uh, I kind of, I kind of got a feeling that like, at least in Scotland, I think that the rinks will probably open if not on time on time, like at some point in the autumn, I'm feeling a bit more optimistic about that than I have been in the past. So not sure about Canada, really haven't really heard much in Canada about that. So what about your rink? Like the, the arena club rink? is your ice hockey rink going to reopen or is it shut down?
1: I, I think they're, yeah, they're still shut down. And that's one of the things with being an arena club is we don't really have any say over anything. If our, if our rink isn't able to reopen, then obviously there's no curling for us. You know, we're at the, we're at the, we're at the mercy of whatever they decide to do. And then what if they, what if they go out of business? If they go out of business, then our club dies and we've already played our last game as a club unless until we get ice again. So yeah. Who knows? I don't, do you guys that, own I, the I, own
0: Rocks no, or not?
1: Yeah, we do. We own the Rocks.
0: Are there other rinks nearby?
1: Both, both sheets of ice in Richmond are owned by the same dude. Hmm. And we can't get if on the other under, one. If he goes under,
0: can your club buy it? What's that? If he goes under, can your club buy it?
1: I mean, that's one of the questions you would have to ask is, can, anyone, can the members of the club come together and come up with enough money to buy it and do something like yeah. what Frogtown in Minnesota did? But I don't know yeah. the I don't know the answer to that question because I'm not on the board.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean I, I think it'll be I. It's it's kind of tough because actually, especially in the U.S., it, there was some serious serious momentum for dedicated facilities, and both the kind of health impact, right, about losing a season or half a season, and also the economic impact, not just. Like Not just the economic impact in terms of the club's cash flow, but the economic impact of if you have a deep recession, which the U.S. is having, um, people, where the first thing they're going to cut is obviously like their leisure activities. And so there's going to be a big cut in terms of just people joining clubs too, I think. So mm-hmm. uh, it'll be interesting to see what the impact is. I mean... So any consolation, like we started the Oklahoma Club in the middle of the Great Recession, right? And yep. uh, the flip side was some things that um, may have been more expensive to get at other times, like rocks. Rocks rocks were actually kind of pretty easy to get because there were a lot of clubs in Canada that had gone under. And uh, the the company we bought the stones from, they just had a lot of rocks sitting in there. We used rocks sitting in the warehouse so you could actually get them at a, at a discounted rate. Um
1: Ice plants, because so, uh, with other rinks, if rinks do start going under, there's going to be a lot of ice plants on the market too.
0: Yep. Yeah. So I think it, it may just be that if if clubs, um, you know, they could – like as uh, a member-owned club, if they, I remember someone saying this to me very early on when we were starting up the Oklahoma club. It's that often the clubs, what makes them sink or swim is not – the cash flow, not the economy it's basically do you have the right people in the club that are willing to dig deep and put in that sweat equity to make it work and if you have that you can kind of overcome the economic problems right you can like a, a clever club can figure out ways to generate revenue or fundraise or all that so and being opportunistic like waiting for a rink to go under and then buying its ice plant uh, is certainly one way you could go from arena to dedicated.
1: So if we do have curling this fall, and we do have tournaments, I know we've seen a few tournaments already say that they're that they're not going to be run. The Shorty Jenkins is one in Ontario. The the Portage events, the Canad In's, men's, women's, and mixed doubles tournaments have always have already said that they aren't going to be played. If we do have tournaments, we have a new ranking system. Yeah, to rank these teams. That was news that came out earlier uh, earlier this week that the world curling tour is breaking from its association with Jerry Gertz and curling zone and they've kind of started their own ranking system based off of the way the ATP does things and instead of having points based off of strength of field in the tournament each tournament is going to be put into you know various stages of of point systems and then you're going to earn points based on if you make playoffs and how you do in those playoffs. So it's a, it's very different from the way the point systems were set up before. And I'm wondering, Jonathan, it, you were able to find out what about the two, the now two ranking systems.
0: Not okay. So the WCT one, I'm just going off their post. Uh, they, so they simultaneously announced two things. They announced the new point system, Saying that it's easier to follow, which in a certain sense is true. So it's basically tiers, and then you win points depending on how well you do. Uh, it looks a lot like the Twine Time ranking system if you follow yeah, that it blog. That, that kind of breaks down every week, and uh, he kind of basically goes according to the. He basically has different tiers, and then he kind of calculates the points and uses that to establish his kind of ranking system. Then they said that J- they also announced that Jerry Gertz was moving on to new things. Uh, then Jerry Gertz posted on social media like a day later. He basically said all oh, this came out a little bit early, but that he's still doing ranking systems and that he's still working with curling zone and he's still working with the slams. And he's also working on developing something called the world team ranking system, which, it, which isn't new. The WCF approached Jerry to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think last September. Yeah. Uh, he, and he talked so, about
1: he talked about it a lot on the two girls in a game pod, because he went on their their first episode of this season to talk about his, basically the conversations that he had with the WCF and with the member organizations over the summer and how they were developing this ranking system, which it doesn't appear it's going away. It appears that that is here to stay and that this World Curling Tour ranking system is completely being done on their own So you're basically, you're going to have two ranking systems. And I guess my question is, Jonathan, if the Grand Slam is using the curling zone system done by Jerry and the World Curling Federation member associations are going to use that system to help rank and fund their teams, why do we need this second ranking system, and should we pay any attention to it at all?
0: Uh I mean, it's interesting. okay, so there's actually a lot of ranking systems out there, right? Like um so Twine Time is kind of like a good social media one. Uh, he's kind of used his system to rank teams. uh, The Curling News has its like top fifteen rankings in every issue. I think they go straight
1: uh, off of money earned.
0: Uh, so like, I don't know if they go straight off money earned. Um, they used to. So there used to be this thing way back in the day. like the the earlier iteration of the curling news uh, back when I was a junior. So back, back when I was a junior, we used corn brooms and dinosaurs walked the earth. Um, they, they had something called the gold trail and they would just be how much money you won. And back then, you know, if you want a $5,000 cash spiel that shot you up the list pretty high, pretty quickly. So the gold list back then was maybe the top team made a hundred thousand a year. And that was kind of a big ac- accomplishment. So it was straight up money. I um, think the bigger question here is what's the function of the world curling tour, right? Like they can have a ranking, but really it's a, it's first ranking when it was coming along for the world curling tour was to determine which teams to invite to the players championship. Uh, and the players' championship now has been folded into the grand slam of curling. And so, if the grand slam of curling is using the, the Jerry Gertz curling zone WCF ranking system, it, it also actually kind of raised some interesting questions about what the world curling tour is going to do, right? Like, what, why, if I'm running a bond spiel at a club and World Curling Tour normally charges a certain fee for, um, for people to have a card, so to speak. It's not really clear if I could just say, I don't feel like as an organizer charging that fee, I'll just simply report the results to Jerry Gertz and curling zone and, and players can still earn the order of merit points and not even bother collecting the extra 1550, whatever it is per, per team to register for the event. Right? So it's not clear, I think in some ways this kind of puts the World Curling Tour in a bit of peril. It's not really clear what its, what its purpose is under this new system. Um, especially if the, if the slams, which are kind of the pinnacle of the cash side of the sport, are pulling off the order of merit system. It's not really clear um, what value for money the World Curling Tour is offering anymore. So it, it's a schism that I'm kind of wondering if it actually is pretty bad news for the World Curling Tour.
1: Yeah, so why would they do that? Why would, they they? Go off, why would the World Curling Tour go off on their own and do their own thing? Uh,
0: I'm not – so I'm not sure. I think it's interesting. I don't know. I, I'm not sure of the politics of it. The, the messages seem – I will say that both social media messages had a bit of passive, good old-fashioned Canadian <laughs> passive aggressivity to it. So I was like – as a Canadian, I was like, ooh, maybe an American catch on it. But I was like, whoa, you know. Uh, it's pretty, <laughs> it, it didn't seem like the most amicable uh, <laughs> divorce, if you will. So I'm not sure what the fight was about. Um, I do know that, that Jerry has been looking to add not just cash to tour events, but other events. So like when we were playing in the Baltic Super League last year, Rob posted something on Facebook and Jerry saw it right away and he wanted to know about the event and get the data And that was not a cash event. So he just kind of created something and it was, you know, under the strength of field multiplier, probably worth like 0.089 or something points per, per uh, win. So it wasn't, it wasn't like big, big points, but he wanted the points there. He, he seems to want the data and he wants every event he can get. He, I know he also kind of reached out to ECA and kind of got some, English curling association scores up there as well. And so again not a high prestige event but it really does seem like he's trying to build a system that tries to capture all the competitive curling going on in the world not just the the cash play. The World Curling Tour has pretty um like strict criteria. Like you have to have x number of teams, x, x amount of money has to go into the prize purse. Mm-hmm. And I think we said this before. I think that model works really well in Canada where clubs are quite happy to donate the ice and live off the bar. But, you know, if, for instance, if in England, let's say I want to, if I want to organize the Rocks Across the Pond Invitational. Okay. Um, <laughs> I have to go hire a hockey rink at like 300 pounds an hour, or 400 yep. pounds an hour. Right. That's going to blow the cost of the bond spiel through the roof. Right. So. The model the WCT has in terms of cash ratio and everything else, uh, I think, doesn't really work in a lot of other countries, and so it might actually, in a certain sense, be blocking the growth of the sport, especially in new and emerging countries. Right, like Baltic Super League doesn't count under under um, WCT criteria because it's in a two sheet club in Riga and that's the only curling club in Riga. And it's just the members, there. just, they want to do a competitive bond spiel to tune up for their national championships. They just get the, the top men's teams and try to invite another, some other competitive teams from around the region to just come and play a quick weekend tournament. That's really all the teams trying to tune up for their nationals. Um, but they, they can't structure that event being only two sheets and having to pay the ice costs to meet the w, WCT criteria. So it could never be a WCT event. Um, so I think that's, and I think part of what the WCF wants is these order of merit rankings are increasingly being used to select national teams and to make decisions them. about who gets funding. And so um, teams teams care more about points than about mm-hmm. money. Like, I, I'm so old that, like, again, back to the time when people had corn brooms and dinosaurs, right? Like, back then, like, a lot of the competitive spiels would be prize spiels because it was easier to say, go to your local car dealership and say, donate us four cars from like last year that you're, you know, they're kind of still new, but kind of, you know, last year's model, so to speak. And you can take that as a tax write off and we can use that to entice teams, right? So a car spiel was like a really common thing that would still entice the top teams come play in it and then as the game got a bit more professional in the late 80s early 90s the WCT came along and really started putting pressure on bond spiels becoming cash spiels so cash was the way we measured things and then as the the grandson of curling came along and kind of in the early 2000s they needed a point ranking system and so we ultimately settled on this order of merit system and now teams trace points Right? I remember mm-hmm. playing in a bond spiel last year and the opponent, he could just rattle lot. He, he basically, they planned out their season based entirely on what the strength of field multiplier was for bond spiels. And they basically had a very clear strategy. If you want to go some high, we want to go some high ones, but we also know we can't win those. So we also have to go find a couple that we know we will probably will win. So we end up getting a nice pattern of, of points so that we can then qualify for events that we want to qualify for like slams and like, um, Getting themselves a buy to the provincials or all, all all the other kinds of things that go with points, like the cash is still good because it helps underwrite the team's mm-hmm. expenses for the year. And obviously, no one's going to complain about winning cash, but teams are primarily now driven by points and by the strength of field multiplier, not by how much cash there is on the table.
1: I think one of the one of the other big differences, and I don't know what the what the curling zone slash grand slam slash world curling federation system is going to look like going forward but you basically got points for every win and it looks like the new system that the wct is doing you only get points if you qualify and then you get points based off of how you finish so i was a when when i first saw it i thought oh the um the most important the most important games in curling are now the tiebreakers at the Grand Slam. But now that you found, now that we saw shortly after that the Grand Slam is still using the old system, I mean that's that's no longer the case. But yeah, now the now in terms of the WCT's system, the tiebreakers are almost more important than any, than any other game because it's the difference between a large number of points and zero points.
0: Yeah, and I think, but I think you can still earn points. You can still go to a WCT event and collect points for um, the order of merit. Correct. Right. Yeah. So like, I think we played, we played RCMP last year. I don't think it's a WCT event. I don't think it was on the WCT webpage. It may, it may be, but they, there was, there was no announcement about its point value or anything there. And, but we did get order of merit points because it was up on curling zone. Mm-hmm. So, it's still possible. And the, the other spirit we played in was in Kitchener and that was a WCT event and you, you still got order of merit points there. So it's like, it's roughly it's depending on the strength. It's basically about a point, a win in the qualifying round multiplied by the strength of field multiplier. Right. So if you're in an average Ontario curling tour event, you're going to get about a point, maybe a point 1.1, 1.2 points per win in the qualifying round. And then the points shoot up each stage of the, of the, the knockout phase. Right. So, it's not all that different in a certain sense. Like the numbers are way bigger, but it's basically the same concept uh, without, the, without any points for how you do in the qualifying rounds, right? Whereas yep. part of what the Order of Marriage is trying to do is, is try to more fine-tune um, where teams are. So let's say you do get knocked out on a tiebreaker. You still went like three and one in your pool but you got knocked down or two and two in your pool. So you still get a few points for the weekend. You can still kind of walk away with something. And obviously if you offer, well, then you deserve nothing anyway. So
1: So what's going to become of the, of the world curling tour now?
0: I don't know. It's a good question. I I can see, I I think, it seems like things are moving very quickly this off season. Uh, And it's, it kind of reminds me of like, like professional sports in North America in the seventies, where there's like a whole bunch of weird leagues popping up and it's not really clear how it's going to consolidate. But I I feel pretty confidently the direction of travel is some form of consolidation. Um, I think that ultimately the slams are a really successful thing now, which is odd to me because about a decade ago, they almost went Mm -hmm. under and stepped in and bought them. But I think Sportsnet's struck a model that makes it obviously a viable thing for them. And it's a viable event now where where it was kind of hit or miss the first decade, I'd say. Um, So I think the slams are basically defining at least the cash side of things. And obviously the World Curling Federation, because it controls access to the Olympics, which ultimately drives everything, controls the kind of international competition side of things. It's not clear to me where the World Curling Tour fits in that model. And it's not really it, – so there's kind of two weird things going on here, right? This world team ranking thing is actually aspiring to capture any competitive tournament or event on the planet, which at on one end is kind of fantastic, right? That you could show up and organize, say, a 6 or 18 tournament in Latvia or in some other emerging curling country the teams can participate and they can collect points and they can kind of climb up the world rankings. Um, it's not really clear to me what happens in that mid tier as we've talked before, right? So what happens to the Ontario curling tour events? What happens to the Scottish curling tour events? These events, which may have one or two kind of top 30 teams, but still have a lot of kind of, what we what i'd call club plus like good club players who want to play two three spiels a year maybe enter their local playdowns but they they obviously don't have any illusions about playing in a slam right they're just kind of want to play a slightly higher level than club play does this format enhance that or does it mean that those events simply fall away because they're they're neither slams nor kind of anything else i guess that's the kind of big issue
1: so if the if 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 those events that you just talked about are part of this world the World Curling Federation rankings that are also going to help the slams determine who qualifies for them then then I think that, that that it helps but if if you've got the if the WCT I'm trying to think of how to hang on I'm trying to think of how to word this it, it's almost like the WCT could be might wind up becoming a minor league and becomes the the tour that kind of those mid-level teams you know kind kind of seek out but if if you're not if there's WCT events that aren't helping you qualify for slams then I'm sure there's a lot of a lot of teams that that aren't going to want to be a part of that. I don't know if that makes any sense.
0: Well, I think the, so I think is if I understand the world curling tours business model, essentially it was charging the team's entry fees. Like they, they, you had to play, play in a WCT event. Part of what you do when you sign up is you have to pay a WCT fee. And that fee was then used to kind of track the performance and record of teams. If you go to the world curling tour website, they've got a database of all the teams. They've got all the event, the results from the events. So they were kind of um, keeping the official record, if you will, obviously helping offer some kind of guidance in the background and charging the money in order to do this. So the WCT has a cash flow system, right? Where I don't know where I kind of wonder if the WCT is in trouble is let's say I organized the Fenton's rank world curling tour masters, right? And uh, assuming that as such a thing was possible, right? Um, In England. And, I'm the organizer of that. And let's say for years I've brought a bunch of competitive teams from all around Europe and it's kind of a nice cash event. Let's say it's got 16, 20 teams. Let's say I just say one year, you know, I can knock 50 pounds off the entry price by just not affiliating with the WCT and I'll just report the scores to curling zone. The strength of field multiplier gets caught up there. And so teams can still accumulate the points and I can make the price that much less. And So basically, these events could just simply break away from the World Curling Tour, right? Yeah. Um, That's where I kind of wonder if the World Curling Tour is in trouble, is if if clubs or other organizers say, I don't really see the point in paying for the World Curling Tour fees anymore. And then then their kind of obvious revenue source simply dries up. Um, And then it kind of goes back to a Wild West, right? Because it's not like the grandson of curling is doing its own thing but it's not really clear what these other tournaments are doing. Like if you're organizing a competitive bond spiel, you want to make sure you're not running it on a competing weekend with another one in the next town over or next country over, right? Um, You want to make sure you're attracting a good quality field. And that's kind of where curling really still is in this amateur infancy phase is at this level here where a lot of the good competitive teams that aren't quite yet capable of qualifying for slams or playing, but the events are kind of popping up and fading away, right? Like Scott, I've said this before on the show, but the Scottish curling tour, which is basically the regional competitive tour in Scotland. It's actually a pretty good standard. Like when I first got over here, it was like Dave Murdoch and Tom Brewster would play in like the bond spiels there. If they weren't playing in kind of the next tier up, Um, you know, the year before Grant Hardy teamed up with Bruce Mood. He basically played, the Scottish curling tour and racked up and won all the tournaments there. But he was basically like, I'm in university now. What I can afford is to basically play this little local tour. And that kind of provided a pathway to him to get on one of the teams. Now that's like a perennial top five in the world. Right. If, if that tier falls away, I don't know what takes its place.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's the, I mean, that's the scary thing for curling that you've talked about really since we started doing this podcast.
0: Yeah, and it's kind of like, I, I, I think actually at the upper end, the game's thriving, right? The slams are great. I think probably it's now possible for 10 to 15 teams of each gender to, if not be full-time pro, at least make a go of it through a combination of national team funding and sponsorship and cash winnings. But that next tier down, which is where you get the next breakout teams, it's where the teams leaving juniors need to spend a few years cutting their teeth, There's there's like kind of like nothing there, right? Like every sport needs some kind of feeder system to kind of put the develop the next um, kind of generation of stars, but also to kind of provide a wider base for its pyramid, for lack of a better term, right? And it's not really clear what someone does in those kind of early 20 years when they're jumping from juniors to competitive adult play.
1: Well, and I think one of the issues and we'll kind of get more into this is I think right now, I think we've maxed out the number of professional curlers that you can have under the amount of money that is in curling right now. Like, Unless the game grows exponentially and tournaments grow exponentially either here in the US or in China unless there's growth in one of those two like huge growth in one of those two markets i think we've reached our max right now
0: yeah and it, it is weird right like it's what's driving it is a couple of things so the slams drive it TV and then money. tv money drives it and then the other thing driving it is olympics right so it's it's clear that countries that have a legitimate shot at an olympic medal so the top 8 to 10 countries in the world can normally go to their Olympic Federation, persuade them that curling's cheap because it actually is a pretty cheap sport to sponsor. And they can normally roll out one to two national teams of each gender, put them on tour, pay for them to go on tour. And I've heard I've – heard, the figure I've heard bandied about is about 80,000 euros to about 100,000 US is about the cost it, it takes to put a team – a a team on tour for a full season, Mm -hmm. right? So that's actually something that's viable for a national governing body to do, but it's not really clear outside of Canada, how many other teams can either through self funding or sponsorship pony up that money, right? So you probably have, you probably have six to eight teams in Canada that can kind of piece together that funding through, um, you know, sport Canada funding and what they can win on tour. You probably have 10 teams of each gender internationally. that can do that. But then after that, there's a very quick drop off, right? Like it's, it's very hard to get sponsorship for the next tier down. And then um, it's not really clear what what happens at that next tier,
1: right? And I, I, so getting back to the Scottish curling tour, so what does the news that has come out of Scotland about how they're going to pick their Worlds team – how do you see that affecting that level and the Scottish curling tour? Because I think it's going to go one of two ways. You know, I saw a lot online from people who really love curling in Scotland now that you now that the winner of the Scottish National Championship does not automatically go to worlds. They've announced that. They've announced that it will they will take the Scottish Championship into consideration, but they'll also consider performance on tour and just the chances you have of being successful at the world's level when it comes to selecting their team that that goes to worlds and i saw there's a lot of people saying you know i used to enter the scottish curling championship but now i i'm not going to bother because even if I, I i don't have any i really don't have any delusions of grandeur of winning but if i won i can't go to worlds there's no point in me even trying so will those people see the Scottish Curling Tour as something that they will aspire to enter and do well on? Since these these big name, you know, the the heavily funded um, teams in Scotland are now going to be out chasing points and on tour, um, fully funded from British Curling and Scottish Curling, or will that level in Scotland just die, just die out?
0: I don't know. I mean, I kind of think. I mean, part of me is also like a realist, right? Um, and so, someone who is playing on the Scottish Curling Tour is not going to beat Bruce Mowat or Patterson Team Patterson next year, right? But they're also not, not gonna,
1: gonna, they're also not going to—they're also not going to play Bruce right? Mowat not and Patterson play. in that's, these Scottish, Scottish the Curling difference.
0: tours. We need to figure out a different set of. We, so basically, it goes one of two ways, right? One is just forget that tier. It's basically. British curling is going to pick a couple of men's teams, a couple of women's teams. You're either on the program after you come out of juniors or you're, you're cut. That's it. Right. And that, in a certain sense, that's not that different from like a lot of other sports. Right. So mm-hmm. like football, right. If you're not on a pro contract by the time you're 18, 19, 20, right. It's just, I mean, talking about European football, you're done. Right. Uh, in American sports, right. If you're not drafted coming out of college, uh, maybe you got one or two years to kick around, but if you can't latch on to a pro team, you're done, right? Uh, and so it could be that that's basically what happens with curling: is that when you graduate juniors, if you can't get onto one of these national team programs and funded, your competitive career is over, right? That's that's one kind of possible path it goes, and so then the pros just simply separate off, and it'll be twenty. to th- 20 pro teams max of each gender playing in the world and everyone else just has to find something else. Um, I mean, the flip side is like, could you come up with a different set of incentives that that kept people at least in their 20s engaged, right? So like one of the things that was interesting in the US a few years back, we I mean, remember when we had Stephanie Seneca on, is like they, they were motivated by trying to climb up the rankings. And the other thing she said is the US high performance program put out this kind of $5,000 prize or something about that. Like Basically mm-hmm. the top ranked non high performance team that year would get $5,000 towards their competitive season the next year. Right. And that's, that actually kind of can, can help fund, you know, that probably can help fund two or three bond spiels there, depending on how you slice it up and how far you have to travel. Right. So, that still provided them an incentive, and they had other things to aim for, even if they were playing in the national championships. Um, I mean, the, the the thing, the other thing I'm worried about with these federations essentially ditching their national championships is that's also a media property, right? Like, it, it, like the USA national championship doesn't get that much TV ratings now, but if the pro, if the if the national championships are going to grow with the sport as it grows in the U.S one of the prime ways USA curling is going to make revenue is by having a national championship that really does get a lot of TV attention. It's got to be for something, right? Mm -hmm. It can't just be like a playing tournament, right? It's got to have an event that leads to something of consequence and significance. And so if you basically say, Oh, we're going entirely off order of merit standings in terms of picking teams um, that then kind of devalues over time, your, your media properties too. So I'm not sure if, Associations want to completely throw away these national championships.
1: Yeah, I mean, we saw the BBC showed the Scottish championships the last couple of years. Um, I think mostly online, a little bit on that BBC Alba channel that is what's supposed to be in Scottish Gaelic.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, you can watch it. I could watch it on the BBC Player app. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think they're getting much money, if any no. money, from that. So here's uh, but.
1: Here's where I think. Here's where I think curling is a little different, though, Jonathan, because curling is trying to become like every other sport, where you know, if you're not one of the best by the time that you're 22, 23, your career is done, and you can be, you know, a twice a week club player. And but I'm going to quote Jonathan Havercroft on this one. You have said several times that you don't think skips kind of come into their own and truly. Reach their peak as a skip in terms of the mental aspect of the game until their early to mid 30s, and I think that you're you're starting to see that already. Because I'll be honest with USA Curling, where they are extremely deficient is how they have developed skips. They have developed very good curlers. I don't think the high performance program has developed very good skips, and I think that's one of the reasons that you're seeing who are the two. Best teams right now. It's John Schuster and Rich Ruinen, veterans who have figured out this game and and can, for lack of a better phrase, outthink their opponent. And they're doing that, and that's why they're at the top of the high performance program right now. And that's why they're beating the younger teams. Partially, is because they're they're they've gotten to their peak as a skip and can outthink their opponent. And that's what's made them the best teams in the U.S.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I'll stand by that for sure. Um, you know, th- maybe the one exception here is Rachel Holman, but we haven't seen Rachel Holman at 35, and I think she might be very scary.
1: <laughs> no, what is what um, are what are uh, Rachel Holman and Brendan Botcher going to look like five years from now? <laughs> I think
0: really, but you can tell you can tell a pretty compelling. If you go look at Kevin Cooey's career pre 35, and if you go look at um Brad Gushu's career pre
1: 35,
0: right? Brad Jacobs. Brad Gushu. And Brad well, Brad Jacobs is interesting. He wins a Briar, but he's still not 30. Is he hit 35 yet? I think. Or is he 33, 34? I think he's still early 30s. I think I think Brad Jacobs is kind of I mean, he's been around so long now that people have kind of forgotten about him. He had a really good season this year. I think he's probably he's choice to go on one of these multiple Briar winning roles now. What are we gonna say? He's thirty four. 34, right? So he's close to that peak age, right? But if you look at Brad Gushu pre-35, he wins the 2006 Olympic trial, but it's with Russ Howard (laughs) calling the shots, right? And then he comes back in 2007, loses the Breyer final to um, Glenn Howard, on basically a pretty big mental mistake where he basically, he actually quite literally says, but guys, if, I'm, if I make this shot, I, we win the briar. Right. And he's basically, there's partly like a choke thing going on. There's also kind of just like a, a try to play hero ball thing there. Right. It took him, I'd say a decade from winning the Olympic gold to becoming what he is now, which is basically he's either been in the briar final or won the briar for the last six or seven years. right? Um, like obviously, again, it's basically been him and Cooey. Cooey, the knock on him was he couldn't get past Furby and Martin back in the day, but he also kind of infamously choked away a few Alberta finals. I think in one case, he simply had to draw the eight foot and he threw it through the rings, right? Kevin Cooey today does not choke away finals, right? He's, he's kind of known as the most clutch guy in the sport, right? And it's he's basically, basically two things happen in your 30s. One is you've kind of learned how to properly calibrate that risk reward part. And two is you've basically, I think for like at least elite skips kind of figured out how to overcome that choking impulse, right? You basically develop that mental toughness. Um, There's a lot, you know, working with sports psychologists is great and all that other stuff's great, but I still think it's those mid thirties players that really do. uh, It's the kind of way you take off as a skip certainly.
1: Now you're looking at, how other countries are starting to do things Scotland you know they're basically going to pick who they send to worlds Russia has gone away from their best of seven system and now instead of having basically two teams that are going to play down they'll they would they've consolidated it they went from okay we're going to select two teams and they're going to play down to see who goes to worlds now it's they're just going to pick the team which it's really for Russia it's not that different I mean they're the same country that went and tried to hire Jason Gunligson to help them reach Olympic glory. Um, so I'm, I don't think we need to be up in arms over how Russia is, is going to pick their teams, but it, it does have an effect. And all of this is because of the Olympics and because of how curling has chosen to select what teams qualify for the Olympics. I think that they've they've, they've basically killed off the world's. Because they've now, with this year's worlds being canceled, all these countries only have one shot, and they're all freaking out because the last thing they want is for someone to pull an upset at their national championship, go to worlds, and get beat, and then all of a sudden you're out of the Olympics. On the outside, and on the outside looking in of all of that money that comes from your um, from your Olympic committee, if you make the Olympics. Yeah.
0: Yeah, for Scotland, I'm positive it has to do with a couple of things. One, I think coronavirus certainly forced the decision that there's only one kick at the can, not two, uh, in terms of qualifying for the Olympics. And second, I think the fact that Sophie Jackson upset Eve Muirhead, and then if you recall, there was a big brouhaha over whether or not Sophie Jackson would go or Eve would go, right? Um, I think basically the board probably said if we sent, because then Sophie Jackson didn't qualify for the playoffs. And it's like, if we have a Sophie Jackson incident on either side this year, we don't qualify for the Olympics. And that's a multi-million pound problem, right? That they get one to, I think about one and a half million pounds a year to fund their program. And if they don't make the Olympics, they're not getting that one and a half million pounds.
1: It's it's something that Sweden's been doing, although it's a little different because it's, Scotland is really, they are stuck between kind of the Swedish system and the Canadian system because they, are, like Canada, they have a lot of tradition in this sport. So they don't want to, going full Sweden, if you're, if you're Scottish curling or British curling, um, is going to create a problem with, a big problem with the grassroots aspect of this sport in Scotland. Uh, And the same thing would happen in Canada, which we'll get to here in just a little bit. Um, So they can't go full Sweden, for lack of a better word. Um, But they also have to be involved in the Olympics because they've gotten the taste of that money from from the Olympics. And part of it is the WCF's fault for putting all their eggs into one basket here with the Worlds. And there's really – like you look at the way different team sports – have countries qualify for the Olympics and the only one that's like it is men's basketball where you have one shot at, at the FIBA World Cup to qualify for the Olympics and then you have a couple of other – then you have basically a second chance tournament if you don't qualify at this one Worlds. But every other sport really diversifies the way that you can get in. There's not just one tournament that you have to qualify for and do well at in order to make it. You have Different qualification um, aspects from from each region that you're in. You can go and win your win your way in through, say, the Pan Am Games in um, in North and South America, or you can go in through Worlds, or you can go in through a World Cup series. And yeah. curling, it's different. Curling, you've got well now you have one kick at a at the can, and I think that that has turned Worlds. It's really no longer the world championship. It's the Olympic qualifier, which is sad because you want the world championship to be the tournament that selects who is the best curling team in the world on this specific year. And it's not that anymore. And that that's, that is that is kind of sad. And if you want to, but it's it's the reality that we have now because of the Olympics are now the most important tournament in curling. It's not the world's anymore. It's not the Briar and Scotties. The Olympics now supersedes all of that, and it's going to have an effect on those tournaments that used to be the biggest curling tournament in the world for, um, for so long. Um, so if you, want, if you want that to change, then you have to have a different way of qualifying for the Olympics. And right now, I, I, I just don't think there's enough money in curling to have a second way to qualify for the Olympics, basically.
0: So what's, so what's the, how do they do it in other sports? What do they use to qualify?
1: You have like a world cup series and you earn points during the world cup series to, Mm -hmm. to win, to get your way in. And then a lot of the, a lot of them also, they make it regional. So you have, you know, Asia qualifies X number of teams. And so I know it's that way with, um, soccer or football, as you call it, um, each region kind of runs decides the best way to qualify teams for its region. And then they send, they run their regional tournaments to determine their representative.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think we, we may head that way. I think there's, so I think part of this was really driven by COVID, right? That because the world qualification process or Olympic qualification process through worlds was sliced from two seasons to one, I think that really made it a risky proposition. Like for Scotland, I think they probably feel pretty confident that over a two year cycle, they'll end up being top six, right? Um, In terms of if you average those two results out, but you you go to, you go to a single tournament and there's a lot more risk that you end up finishing seventh or eighth, right? In a single, a single iteration of these things. So I think that, and I assume similar conversation was going on in Russia too. So, I think that partly drove it. Uh, I I do think that the other issue is that there's not a lot of regional balance right now in curling in terms of number of countries and kind of equal strength of play. So you've got – as we talked a lot before about the Asia-Pacific Championships. You now really have three effectively pro countries in Korea, Japan, and China – and then you have a lot of other emerging countries and so we've kind of talked about how there's a pretty big gap like Jason Chang's come on and talked about that on our podcast right there's a really big gap in the Asia Pacific championships whereas Europe's actually got a far more kind of even gradation right you can you know you're running i'd say six kind of good quality countries deep and then you know, bottom end of the A pool, there's a pretty big gap between the the teams that are kind of qualifying for the playoffs. And the B pool's pretty even, and the C pool's even, the C pool is now kind of coming up quite significantly in terms of the depth depth there. Uh, and then the America zone, it's like the probably the most preposterous gap, right? Where you have <laughs> yeah. like Brazil playing Glenn Howard, it's not going to be, <laughs> it's not a pretty sight. Um, so. It may be that there's some kind of rebalancing. I've often thought that maybe we just go to two regions and you have Canada, the U.S., join the Asia-Pacific region, and then maybe you qualify six or eight out of that region and uh, six or eight out of Europe. Uh, Personally, I'd like to see the world's kind of mimic more of how the Briar and Sky is set set up now, but maybe that's a conversation for a different show. Um, And then maybe... I I mean, I I think it's also like, what does this do for individual teams? So is it going to simply be that professional curling teams are just simply nationally funded teams and there's no other teams besides those teams that are playing at a professional level?
1: I think we're getting there and I think what's keeping us from getting there just right now is how successful the Briar and the Scotties are financially, especially in in terms of television. Because with that provincial form I mean, Canada goes even further than the other countries do. And they limit how their own country can even how teams in their own country can even set up their lineups is you they kind of have to do it with this provincial format in mind, where you have to all be representing one province in order to get to the Briar and Scotties and then get to worlds and then um, qualify, yeah, and I, I that provincial format currently. I mean, it definitely does not help Canada in terms of reaching their full potential on the world stage. But until it's really just painfully obvious that it hurts Canada, you're going to see the Briar and the Scotties stay with the provincial format because there is there's a lot to love about it. Unfortunately, the Briar and Scotties are no longer the biggest turnling tournaments in the world. And eventually, I think you're going to see changes there, but it, it just, it may not be, it may not be this Olympic quad. It may not be until after the next Olympic quad, but something's going to change there. And one of the things that we looked at this week on the website was on our website, rocksacrossthepond.com, was we looked at okay, how different would the Briar and Scotty's fields be if they used other countries' formats to qualify? And on the men's side, not that different. Um, on the women's side, it would be very different because you see you do see teams kind of, you know, there's big groups of high quality teams. In Ontario and in Manitoba, and then it's kind of spread out. Whereas in the Briar, it's almost as if they all got together and said, "Okay, I'll take this province. You take this province," and they've kind of set it up to where they have not an easy, but an easier path to the Briar.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's interesting. I mean, my hunch is where it ends up is basically the Canada Cup becomes the world qualifier for for Team Canada. And the Briar and Scotties is perhaps used for two things. One is that the winning team gets some kind of national funding. And two, that perhaps the winning team of that gets a berth in the next year's Canada Cup. So it, it perhaps becomes an event for teams that are um, not quite the top six, right? And so in that situation, maybe the Homans and the the Joneses give it a skip. But like the Flurries, the the Silver Nagels, the teams that are just that next tier down, that becomes the prestige event for them. And I, I honestly do think that it, it's got so much tradition. And I, th- I think there's something primal about rooting for um, a place, right? Yeah. That, you know, part of me is always going to cheer for Team Quebec, right? Just for some irrational reason, because that's where I'm from, right? Regardless of who's, you know, playing for Team Quebec whenever I watch a Briar or a Scotty's, right? Uh, I think there's always going to be an intrinsic appeal in that event but it may be that the best teams aren't playing in that event the top 6 teams are already kind of bided into the canada cup but then the next you know the next tier down uh, is playing in that and part of what they're fighting for is the chance to actually earn their way into that top 6 right that that's a way that i think just flipping the but just flipping the national selection thing that you fix that problem
1: i used to I, think that i've got a more
0: bonkers idea though ryan and I, i'm actually going want to throw something at you okay what if an eccentric billionaire or even millionaire <laughs> is watching the Olympics and they're like, I want a curling team. And we've said before, like actually one of the appeals to these national governing bodies is running a curling Olympic program isn't that expensive, right? And so eccentric billionaire could probably run a curling team for maybe a quarter of a million dollars, right? 100000 for the expenses. Let's say you, you kind of could go approach some kind of – players just out of juniors and say, I'll pay you 25,000 plus all your curling expenses for the year. You could probably get pretty good shooters. Not, not the Kevin Cooey's or Rachel Holman's obviously, but that next tier down, then go hire yourself a good quality coach, slap your corporation's logo on it. So let's say Elon Musk is smoking some (laughs) dope and watching curling. And so either SpaceX curling or whatever brand he wants to slap on it. And you could actually sponsor it the way that this is done in cycling or in racing. Right. And there, there could actually be kind of a viable business model there. And I've often wondered why someone doesn't do that. Just kind of say, oh, there's enough money in this for me as a company or a corporation to back a curling team, but then it's run professionally. So, you know, the eccentric billionaire guy, if he doesn't like a player, how they have played, they're cut and you go and sign somebody else. So if the team starts doing really well, maybe you can go and offer, you know, Kevin Cooey, hundred thousand bucks to jump to jump rank and sign on this team right so it actually professionalizes but the teams themselves become corporate entities that then sign and trade players like like happens in other sports do you think that's a viable model
1: uh, Jonathan you just created curling in Japan
0: yeah is that how it works there yes oh. <laughs> <Like> <laughs> so companies the com-
1: companies just have teams and they serve as a, a marketing arm of their of their company.
0: I like that model, personally. <laughs> I like the idea. SpaceX, Elon Musk is listening
1: to curling podcast. What you have just done is the curling equivalent of the tweet where someone says, you know, have it be like Uber, but a lot of people get together and just take one vehicle. And someone's like, you just invented the bus. <laughs> you just like invented one, public man. yeah, you just invented curling in Japan.
0: <laughs> so then why doesn't why doesn't something like that I actually think and the place where where it's right for it to happen is actually the US because the US still has an open play-down system. And to be honest, if you threw if you went out and hired a good coach, and you could hire a good coach for that rate or maybe a little bit more, but you could get a good coach at that price. Go hire a, a bunch of players coming out of juniors and say, look, your full ride is going to be paid for this year, etc. And you're going gonna, gonna to be sponsored to go play on tour. You could easily qualify for U.S. Nationals. So you're guaranteeing ice, I, uh, kind of eyeball time for your sponsors. And you could probably climb the ranks pretty quickly.
1: I just don't think that there would there's just not enough money in it just yet in the U S you have to have curling on TV more. You'd have to have, you'd have to have If the grand slams get on TV in America, then yeah, then it becomes viable for companies to do that.
0: Yeah. But I I think that might be an interesting experiment to see if, if, uh, so if there's an eccentric billionaire who wants to throw a few hundred thousand pounds our way to, to sponsor the rocks across the pond curling team
1: or just company come or a company like, Dairy Queen the company. That'd be we, awesome. we we The Dairy Queen, the Dairy the Dairy Queen curling team would be yeah. great. We
0: we promise we won't play the team. We'll be like uh, Ryan. Will be kind of the Bill Vec promoter kind of guy.
1: I like. <laughs> I'm down. I'm completely down. Let's do it.
0: I'll be uh, I'll be the Billy Bean kind of deranged uh, general manager, kind of with kind of <laughs> of counterintuitive counterintuitive uh, analytics. Uh, anyway, that's my fantasy.
1: <laughs> I'm not uh, losing
0: my mind at all in lockdown, am I?
1: I, I mean, I, I think I think it's genius, and I think that we need to find uh, find a company out there to to sponsor this idea.
0: Yeah, so there we go. Right. I think that, but I do think there's something to it, right? And it, they, part of the appeal of the open playdown process they still have in North America is someone could actually enter the market, and if it if it did well, it could actually really disrupt things in interesting ways.
1: Yeah, it's just got to be worth. It's just got to be worth it to you. And right now, yeah, right it, now it's not the
0: path is advertising, right? Like it's basically you're selling the way it works for cycling is you sell it to Team Sky or Ineos and like they get a lot of branding out of being on TV. But I think you could actually buy your way onto TV pretty quickly with that model in curling.
1: Yeah, I agree. Yeah. if Yeah. It, in, and it only works really in the US because then you don't have to worry about provincial playdowns.
0: Yeah, although, I mean, I I, I think you could probably, like, you could definitely throw a team together, like, buy a team. Like, you could just go out and buy a Tier 2 team at that rate and guarantee yourself a spot on the Tier 2 slam, right?
1: Maybe that's what Jared Allen's going to wind up doing, is just getting three mercenaries and playing lead for them and basically buying his way into U.S. Nationals into a U.S. National Championship. There was a
0: guy who did that back like in the 90s, and it was a really like he went and hired okay, he, he basically after Kevin Park left Kevin Martin, he went and hired Kevin Park and like two other kind of top-tier players who were had been cut or just didn't have a team that year. His guy's name's like Merv Bardnerchuk or something, and he was basically a lead, but he said, I'm paying, and he was explicit about it, I'm paying them. I want to get to a briar, <laughs> and he's just like, I'll play lead and they basically paid their expenses for the year. They didn't get to the briar though. So it, it didn't work.
1: So maybe that guy, <laughs> maybe that guy's the guy that we need to do the next um, the next podcast like we did for the the ballad of John Schuster. We need the ballad of, of of this guy oh, now.
0: God, sure. yeah. I've got like a lot of very odd trivia for like 90s curling. We could we could do a whole podcast where he asks me weird things from the 90s. <laughs>
1: Jonathan, tell me. Just we just get we just get a bottle of bourbon and just say, Jonathan, tell me a story.
0: Tell me, tell me what
1: it was like in the nineties. <laughs> <Yeah>, basically. <laughs> All right. All right. Um, yeah, this was good. All right, Jonathan, um, stay safe out there. Uh, I'm gonna go feed my kid lunch. All right. See you yeah. soon, man. Thank you for listening to Rocks Across the Pond, a curling podcast. You can find all of our previous episodes and blog posts at rocksacrossthepond.com. Please remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, or your favorite podcast app and leave a review. If you enjoyed listening, the greatest compliment we can receive is when you tell a friend about us. That helps us grow and helps us share our love of this great game. If you have a comment or question, or you just want to talk about curling, you can email us at rocksacrossthepond@gmail.com at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at curlingpodcast. We are also on Facebook and Instagram at RocksAcrossThePond. Thank you again and we will talk to you real soon.